0: Well good morning guys, so glad to be with you here on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. I greeted many of you guys in the little monsoon that we had. Um, I want want to begin to you a story about Netflix and Blockbuster. You may be somewhat familiar with the story of how Netflix got rejected for Blockbuster, but you may not know the details. Um, In 1997, Reed Hastings had a $40 late fee on a movie that he rented from Blockbuster, and he was like, this isn't cool. And so him and a buddy of his were the co-founders of Netflix. In 1997, it was where you would go online, you could order a DVD. So this was before streaming, the internet capacity, you couldn't do that. You could order a DVD, they'd mail it to you, and you would it back. Um, it was a great concept. This is during the dot com boom when online businesses were becoming a thing. The problem was uh, that, that DVD players weren't kind of readily available in everybody's home. They were still kind of expensive, so they struggled for the first couple of years, didn't make any profit. Uh, and then they were trying for a long time to get a, a meeting with the CEO of Blockbuster to get Blockbuster to acquire them, and so that Netflix could help their online presence, and you know, and then they would kind of partner up that way. And so finally, in the year 2000, uh, Netflix, their company was on a, a kind of a staff retreat in California. Uh, they get a phone call. Reed Hastings gets a phone call and says, this is "The block, CEO of Blockbuster and the leadership is finally going to agree to meet with you." The only problem was it was a 12. It was in. The, it was the next morning. 12 hours from then, and Dallas, and they were in California. So the only way they could get there in time was to charter a private jet at 5 a.m. in the morning. Actually, it was Vanna White's jet, so I don't know if you want some trivia. There you go. Um, And it would cost them $20,000. They hardly had any money to spare, but they figured we're about to go under anyway, so we might as well go for it. Uh, They get there, and during this meeting, the CEO of Blockbuster kind of wasn't really amused. I don't think he actually wanted to take the meeting. And after Netflix kind of explains their process and how they do things and how they could help Blockbuster, uh, they they share with Blockbuster the proposal that they wanted Blockbuster to acquire them for $50 million dollars. Now the story, if you may be familiar with it, of course, Blockbuster says no. About ten years later, uh, Blockbuster is now bankrupt and out of business. There is only one left. It's a franchise in Bend, Oregon. Uh, funny enough, I have a college friend who lives in Bend, Oregon, so I see these pictures of the store every once in a while. Um, and uh, Blockbuster is no more. And Netflix today has a valuation of almost two hundred and twenty-five billion. Now. What you may not understand from that story because you're thinking, well, Blockbuster blew it. What you may not know is that this meeting took place in December, sorry, in September of the year 2000. This is during the dot-com crash. And in fact, October, it was the lowest it had been. The stock market was going down with it. So they were struggling. Uh, they hadn't made a profit yet. In fact, the previous year, Netflix, their uh, total revenue that they took in was $5 million. They're still running a negative. And that same year, uh, the previous year, Blockbuster had just gone public and they were valued at $4.8 billion dollars. And so you can see why in that moment, in that meeting, Blockbuster says, we're not going to give you $50 million when you can't even make a penny, right? You can see why that, that would happen. And I share that because today we're continuing in the, in the, through the Exodus story. And last week we started the plagues. As we're sending Sunday, I think Adam did a great job. And uh, he walked us through the first six plagues in Egypt where the Israelites had been beaten, they had been raped, there had been legalized genocide and discrimination. And so God through Moses is using him, displaying plagues and telling, Pharaoh to let the people go, Pharaoh is saying no. And I think in many ways, Pharaoh is like many of us, right? Because if you remember in Exodus chapter five, the first time Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say to let the Israelites out of Egypt, what does Pharaoh say? He says, who is the Lord, right? Who is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, that I should obey him. Right? Why should I listen to your God when I'm actually a deity myself and the Egyptians have their own God, the most powerful nation on earth? Why should he listen to them? And of course, now he's experiencing his power. We saw from the last few plagues uh, that he's crying out to God. He's actually asking God through Moses to relent. And then every time Moses through God, or God through Moses relents from a plague, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. And then he says, nope, you're not going to go. Now, I think this is actually pretty relevant to us because Pharaoh's question, who is God that the Lord that I should obey him, is actually a very postmodern question. It's very relevant to us today. You may be surprised to uh, hear this, um, but it's relevant to us today because the major question for most people on the entire earth, United States included, is not does God exist? The biggest question that most people have is who should I actually obey him? It's not that this, this God is it, exists. It's who should, if I should actually obey him, and we know this. Uh, there's plenty of research that's done about this. In 2014, uh, Pew Research, one of the leading research firms in all the United States, did a massive study, and they found that only 3.1 percent of Americans actually identified as atheists, saying there is no God, and we're pretty sure that God doesn't exist. Uh, there was actually a worldwide study done in 2019 by a couple of leading sociologists in the field, and they looked at things like Pew Research. In different research fields in all various different countries who asked their people their religious beliefs, and they found that in 2019, only 7% of people in the world considered themselves as atheists. What this means is that people overwhelmingly believe God exists or believe something is out there. They may not be sure what it is, but most of us believe that something is probably out there. And so, and this is actually even relevant to us. If you're here today and say, I do, I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. That, this question also still haunts us, right? Who is the Lord that I should obey him, right? That is the rub for us. The, the, the reality of the situation is our culture today, our culture is completely fine with the idea of a God existing as long as this God minds his own business and does not ask us to do anything we didn't already want to do ourselves. Right. We're fine with this idea of God or a supernatural power or being or creator or whatever you want to call it or call him existing. As long as he doesn't ask us to do something we weren't already planning on doing. Right. The problem is when he confronts us with our desires and our wants and he's asking us to do something we don't want to do. And then the question becomes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And that's where we find ourselves. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter 9. Uh, If not, uh, there's a black Bible somewhere around you. You can read along with us. We'll be on page 52 there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. So in Exodus chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 13, we are going to be looking at the sixth plague. So last week we looked at the first six, or sorry, the seventh plague. Uh, last week we looked at the first six, which was uh, the Nile turning to blood. Uh, you had frogs, you had gnats, you had flies, you had the death of livestock, uh, livestock and then you had boils. Now the last two plagues, the, day, the death of livestock and boils, did not impact the Israelites. The first four did, the last two didn't. And so we're coming to the seventh plague. Now, recently, Pharaoh has just told Moses that he actually can, he can, the people can go, but only a few people for only a short amount of time, right? He actually said that could happen. Of course, when the plague relents, the boils relent, Pharaoh then says, no, actually none of you can leave, right? When things are getting better, he says, I don't want anything to do with you or your God. And so we'll pick up the story, chapter nine, verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. Right? So God answers Pharaoh by saying, do you, uh, you want to know why you should obey me? Because I could have killed you by now. Like you and the entire army, the entire nation, Right? I am the Lord. He's saying, you think the plagues were bad. I could have just taken you out. Right? I could have just gone that route. Now, if you've been with us, particularly through most of the story in Exodus, uh, you might be wondering, why doesn't he? Right? Why does not Like, even if you take, I mean, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you're obviously sympathetic to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And so, of course, you'd be like, well, this isn't fair. But even if you're not, right? If you're just a plain reading of the story, you see a people group, the Egyptians, not only oppressing the Israelites, but beating them, uh, putting them in slavery, probably raping them, genocide. Like, you would just look at the situation and be like, this isn't cool. Why doesn't God do something about this? I, don't, I think that's a legitimate question. And this is what God is saying. And he actually gives us an answer in verse 16. Here is why God hasn't just completely wiped them off the face of the earth. Here's what it says. God says, however, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. So what we see happening here is that God has a bigger picture than just Pharaoh in mind. He has a bigger picture than just Egypt in mind. In fact, we're going to see his purposes for this were to show the whole world, the the, the neighboring nations that these band of slaves who were not trained in military fighting, did not own, have a lot of possessions or not a lot of wealth, were actually able to leave and, and, and in other words, defeat Egypt. Right? It was not just for this present moment, but it was for the whole world. And I think this is important for us to remember, as you and I are walking through life, and we have difficult things that happen to us, and we wonder, God, what could you possibly be doing? Why would you allow this to happen? We need to remember that God's purposes are bigger than our perspectives, right? God's purposes are bigger than our perspectives. Now, this does not mean it makes it any easier, Right? This does not mean when we're suffering, when things like 2020 is happening and the election is coming up and this pandemic and all the various things you have already might have been experiencing, even outside of those things, that it makes it any easier. This does not mean that we can't ask God questions or wonder why or that it won't uh, produce doubts in us, but I think it's just helpful to remember that there is so much more going on than we can ever even imagine in this life. Now, I think the good news is I fully believe that in God's kingdom, we will have a greater perspective and we will be able to understand and see why God allowed things to happen and why God acted the way that he did. But in this moment... We all have a very limited perspective and it isn't, I think it's okay for us to say and to remember that in your struggles and in your your doubts and you're wondering, God, why does you allow this suffering or this evil to continue to happen, that his purposes are bigger than our perspectives. We have no idea what God might be doing because of the things that we're walking through and the, the way his power and his love and his glory might be displayed in the future. And that is what is happening here. And so we'll continue in verse 17. Here's what happens next. He says, you are still acting arrogantly. God is saying this to Pharaoh through Moses. You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the fields into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt on the people and the animals and every plant on the, of the field in the land of Egypt. Right, I think this is just fascinating. As a side note, we see that these plagues are catching the attention of other Egyptians. Right, some of them know that something is going on here, and so some of them are like, "This Yahweh, we're going to do what he says." And so they take their their, fee, their servants and their animals in, and then of course others didn't, and those that didn't were struck down. And so the hail came, uh, it killed some animals, it struck down some people, it ruined whatever was remaining of any crops that had survived the various other plagues. And we'll pick the story back up um, in verse. Let's see, verse twenty-two. Or sorry, verse twenty. Where am I? We'll pick it back up in verse 26. There we go. Verse 26. After everything is destroyed, it says this. It says, "'The only place that didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time,' he said to them. "'The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer.'" Moses said to him, "When I have left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. But as for you and your officials, I know that you still not fear that you still do not fear the Lord God. See what's happening here throughout these plagues and Pharaoh's response is common? in all of us, right? Often in hard seasons, uh, sometimes brought about even our own poor decisions or maybe our own sinful desires, uh, there is pain and there is suffering. And there is this, what what appears to be repentance, but it's really just, God, make this go away. God, I'm going to say sorry because I got caught or because things aren't going the way that I want them to go. But I'm not actually repentant, right? I'm not actually sorry. I just want to save face or I want to keep my job or I want my spouse or my friends not to be mad at me. I'm not truly repentant. I just want this situation to go away, and if I say I'm sorry, well, maybe that will do the trick, right? Pharaoh does, I think, what many of us do when we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation. It's not that we're actually repentant. We just want the situation to end, and we'll do whatever we think we need to do to make God make it stop. Now, Moses here calls this out, right? He says, I know that Pharaoh, you and your officials don't actually fear the Lord. We've we've done this, what, seven, six, seven times already? Like, you don't actually care. You just want this to end, right? You really just want to make a deal." with God. Now again, we gotta put ourselves in the perspective of the Egyptians and the and Pharaoh, right? If we were Pharaoh, you and I would likely respond the same way that he would, right? He thinks of himself as a god or some sort of deity. They're the most powerful nation on earth. You have these slave people telling Pharaoh what he should and should not do, right? This seems kind of crazy, right? And Pharaoh's response to us seems kind of crazy until we realize we do the same thing, right? We often do the same thing. There are oftentimes where you and I think we are wiser than God. And so instead of obeying him or what he might have us do, we kind of want to go our own way to kind of get around the situation while still maybe saving face or still pursuing the things that we want to pursue. And I think one of the themes that is kind of screaming out of us as we read these plagues is the reality that surrender to God brings life, not death. See, ultimately, surrender brings life, not death. So often when things happen in our life, we might want to make a deal with God or we might want to say, God, I want to do it this way. I don't want to do it that way. Can we kind of picture God as like this, kind of this joy kill, this buzz kill who makes us want to do all these things so that we just sit home and we're bored and we don't get to have any fun, right? We think that God is trying to restrict us. But if he actually loves us, cares for us, created us, and knows what is good for us, sometimes he will ask us to do hard things. Sometimes he will lead us to do things that we wouldn't naturally want to do, but it's in order for us to experience life and not death. Right? We need to remember when we're going through hard situations and we want to kind of choose our own way instead of a way that honors God and loves people, that God loves you. And he's at, and, and, he's, and, and because he loves you, you and I asking God to make a deal with us is asking, us to, asking him to actually care for us less. Right? If he actually desires us to grow in our knowledge of him, to love people better, that he desires good things for us, when we go to God and ask him to make a deal with, it, with us, we are actually asking for him to care for us less. We're asking him to do things that we think are good, even though he actually knows what is good. I kind of think of like Finley, our daughter, she's five. If it, was, if it was up to her, every night we would watch a movie and she would eat popcorn and M&Ms, right? She just loves it. And then by extension, our two-year-old Roman, he just loves it because whatever sister wants to do, he wants to do, right? Now, if it was up to her, we would do that every night. But here's the reality situation. Her, her mom and I, Christine and I, we love her too much to do that for her. Right? We have a perspective and understanding on her physical health, on her mental growth, and how watching TV, watching movies every single night is probably not the best thing for her development. And so we are not going to do what she wants to do. And if we were to do what she wants to do, we would actually love her less. Right? Surrender brings life, not Death And what Pharaoh is doing is trying to go his own way. What you and I can do, we can try to go our own way and actually experience the exact opposite thing than we actually think we're going to get if we do the things the way that we want to do them. Surrender brings life, not death. And Pharaoh is not yet understanding that. And so he's going to experience a lot more deadly and unpleasant things. So we'll pick up the story again. Well, this time we'll uh, skip to verse 34. This is after the hail has gone away. And the Lord relented. It then says this, When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he again hardened his heart, he and his officials. Verse 35. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I might do these miraculous signs of mine among them. And so that you may tell your son and your grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them, and you will know that I am the Lord. Again, this isn't just for the world, it's even for Moses and the Israelites in the future generations to see that God actually is in control of all things, that he is powerful and mighty. Right? And so what's happening here, in other words, is not just God's judgment on Egypt. Right, It's to be a reminder of God's faithfulness. Again, in chapter 9, verse 16, it's not just about this particular situation. It's about the nations knowing and that Israel to know, because they're going to experience a lot of difficult things throughout their history that God is in control. And so chapter 10, verse 3, will continue the story. It says this. <clears throat> so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and told him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder left to you that escaped the hail. They will eat every tree you have growing in the fields. They will, fly, they will fly, fill your houses, all your officials' houses, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something your fathers and grandfathers never saw since the time they occupied the land until today. Then he turned to Pharaoh and left his presence. Pharaoh's officials asked him, how long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt is devastated? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh Go worship the Lord, your God, Pharaoh said, but exactly who will be going? Moses replied, we will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, because we must hold the Lord's festival. He said to them, the Lord will have to go with you if if I would ever let you and your families go. In other words, I'm not going to let that happen. Look out, you are heading for trouble. No, go, just able-bodied men. Worship the Lord, since that's what you want. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. So this is the second time, last week was the first time, this is the second time that Pharaoh's interested in making a deal. It's kind of like, you know, he he said, it's kind of like, think of it this way. Like, let's say you're going to go buy a house, right? And let's say the house is $200,000. And so you have Pharaoh who's coming in with a lowball offer, right? Uh, The first time he says, $20,000, I'll pay $20,000. In other words, a few of you can go, but then you have to come back quickly. And then Moses says, no, that's not going to work for us. And so now here's the second offer. He raises it up a little bit, $25,000. Some of you can go, but just the young, basically the young, strong men, the ones that could have some military might, um, but the older men and the women and the children and the elderly and the flocks and the animals, they all have to stay right? So $25,000. But I can't do any more, right? Because if he does more, he looks weak. Remember his positioning, that he is Pharaoh, that he is a deity, that he's strong, that he's over all of these things. And so he ups it up a little bit, but of course that won't do. So here's what happens next in verse 12. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt and the locusts will come up over it and, every, and eat every plant in the land, everything that the hail left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord sent an east wind over the land all that day and through the night. By morning, the east wind had brought uh, brought in the locusts. Right, So the locusts come in. They're eating whatever is remaining of the crops. They're in the houses. It's kind of like a blanket over the earth. Everything is awful. It's devastated. It's dark. And so all that happens. And then verse 16, what do you know? Pharaoh wants it to stop. Verse 16 will pick up the story. Then says this. Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord your God so that he will just take this death away from me. So Moses does this. He goes and he stops the locusts from coming. They get driven out from the land. And then verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go and worship the Lord. Even your families may go with you. Only your flocks and herds must stay behind, right? So it's so dark. I mean, all they have is candlelight, so they can't do any work. They're kind of stuck there. And Pharaoh says, okay, this is bad. I'll up the upper again, $150,000, right? You can go, your daughters, your sons can go, your elderly can go, all of you can go, but the animals and the livestock, They have to stay, right? Final offer. Everything else, but they have to stay. This is miserable. Now, the problem, of course, is this can't happen for two reasons for the Israelites. One, because they want to worship and offer sacrifices, and you need animals for that. And two, they have a journey ahead. And so they need the milk. uh, They need the meat. They need to be able to trade with various people groups and nations as they are, as they're on their journey, just for their survival. They need their flocks, and they need their animals. They can't go just them. Right? They can't go just them. And then verse 25 and 26, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Exodus. This is awesome. Look, look at Mary, uh, Moses' response to Pharaoh when he says, all of you can go except the animals. Here's what he says. Moses responded, "'You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to prepare for the Lord our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship the Lord our God.' And then he says, we will not know what we will use to worship the Lord until we get there. Right? Did you catch that? He's like, we have to take all of them because I don't know what we're going to need them for. Right? I think this is awesome. And I think it's a reminder because uh, when we read this story, you and I, from our perspective, we know what happens. We know they leave. We know they make it out and they kind of go through the wilderness. And one day they eventually make it into the land that God had pr- promised for them to give. What we forget is that Israel does not know what's going to happen. Right? Even, the, even though they've seen all of these mighty plagues and the power of God, they have no idea where they're gonna, how they're going to get there, how they're going to survive, how all these people are going to travel through the wilderness and not be attacked by other people, which is going to happen. Right. They have no idea how this is actually supposed to work. Right. Israel has to do what you and I have to do. We have to trust God, even when we don't know what the final result is going to be, right? Even Moses is saying, I have no idea. I've been doing all these plagues, but I don't even know what what all this is for in terms of what our journey is going to look like, so I need everything. And I think this is a helpful reminder for us to remember that we don't have to know how things are going to turn out in order to trust the Lord, right? We don't have to know how the ending is going to be in order for us to be faithful and follow God. Because if you're like me, You have situations in your life where it's like, God, I'll do whatever you want and I'll suffer and I'll go through hardships as long as you can promise that the the desired result will be X, right? As long as I know what will happen in the end, I'm good with whatever happens in the medium, right? But that's not how it works. God is inviting us to trust him. He's inviting us to trust him. And as we've seen throughout Exodus, oftentimes you and I get frustrated with God because we assume things are going to go a certain way that he didn't say they're going to go. And then they didn't go the way that we assumed. And then we get mad at God because we think God hasn't done something that he never even promised to do. Right? In other words, you can think of it this way. That oftentimes we want answers. But God wants us. See, we want answers. But God wants us. Us. And he wants us not in the sense of like he needs us and he can't function without us, but he wants us in the sense that he loves us and cares for us and wants us to experience his grace and his mercy. See, at the end of the day, God is inviting us into a relationship with him, and when we miss that, it's about a relationship about God with us and with His people. We kind of paint God into this picture, and we think God acts in a certain way that He doesn't. Right? I think if we're honest, if you're like me, if you're like me, uh, if it was up to us, we would sidestep our situations just to get to just have God fix it. Right? It's not that we want uh, to walk with the Lord. It's not that we want to experience His presence. We just want kind of like God to be like this cosmic genie, and whenever something bad happens, He gets us out of the situation right? We want God to kind of fix our problems, but we don't actually want God, right? We want God to fix our problems and we don't actually want him. And so we miss out about the point about walking with God and our difficulties. It reminds me of this. I grew up, you know, playing the piano and none of my other close friends in the neighborhood, anyone, no one else played instruments. I was the only one. And so every once in a while, at a friend's house or something, I would play a song on the piano. And there were multiple times, I still remember this to this day, multiple times after I played a song, one of my friends who has no idea how to play anything would come up to me and say, Dylan, can you show me how to play that song? And I remember thinking, are you dumb? Right? Like, what do you mean can I show you how to play the song, right? You can't just like sit down after years of practice, you have no idea what to do, and you just kind of play the song, right? Because when it comes to piano, like it's not natural, like your fingers and how you're supposed to play, like you, it's not what you think it is. You have to train, you have to learn, you have to remember, you can't just like sit down and give me 30 minutes and you, all of a sudden be able to play the song, right? In that situation, here's the thing, in that situation, my friends were just interested in learning how to play a song. But would it not be better if they knew how to play the piano, right? Would it not be better if they not just knew how to play one song, but if they could play many songs? And I think what so often happens in our lives is that we're in a difficult situation and we just want God to fix it. But would it not be better if we learned how to walk into trust with him no matter what comes our way? Right? Do we want to settle for just playing a stinking song on the piano or do we want to walk with the Lord? Right? We want to walk with his grace and experience his mercy so that we can navigate life when it is hard. We can experience his grace and his mercy when we don't know what to do. You see, we often just want answers, but God wants us. And that's what's happening here in this text. And let's continue, verse 27. We'll just read a couple of more verses this morning in Exodus. Here's the last part we'll read. It says this. So after this situation, after Moses like, I don't know how many animals we need, so we need all of them, it says this. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, leave me, make sure you never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. So he leaves Pharaoh's presence. And what we need to understand, I know there's some questions about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Well, what we see throughout the Exodus story is that Pharaoh actually hardens his own heart five times before God does anything to him. And what it's showing us is that God is essentially giving Pharaoh over to Pharaoh's own desires, right? And so Exodus 11, which I'll just summarize, we won't read this morning, is the, is the setting up of the final plague, that God tells Moses and Aaron that there's going to be the death of the firstborn over all of Egypt. And then it's going to take place in Exodus 12, which we will read next week. Now, I don't know about you. I know we've read a lot of verses this morning. Congratulations. I think this is the most amount of verses we've ever read at New City Church. But as we think about what's happening here today, last Sunday, and in Exodus, um, you might wonder, why is God doing all of this, right? Like, what's so special about Israel Like, why is he going out of his way? I'm sure there's other people in other parts of the world that are also experiencing slavery and suffering. Like, what is it that plague after plague, he's being faithful to a people who didn't even, like, ask him to be? That God just simply chose him. Why would he do this? What's so special about it? Well, we see an answer to that in Romans chapter 9. If you're good for four more verses, uh, Romans chapter 9, you can flip there. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 9, verse 14 through 18, the Romans, or Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's talking about God choosing and electing to save Israel. Now this, these four verses are not a fan favorite. You won't often hear these verses preached because here's what it says. Verse 14, it says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on the God who shows mercy. For scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardened, or hardens whom he wants to harden, right? This passage is referencing the story we read this morning. It's why, just as a side note, uh, some Bible scholars will say that the New Testament is just actually footnotes to the Old Testament, right? Because when we see what's actually going on here, the New Testament comes alive in different ways. Now we know what, what uh, Paul is talking about here. Now we read this and it makes us anxious, right? What do you mean he chose to have mercy on the Israelites? Like why them and not on their people. It makes us anxious. The question, though, is should it? Right? Should it actually make, an- make it anxious? Because what we see happening in Exodus, uh, what we see happening in Exodus is that God is merciful on a people who did nothing to deserve it. He just promised to rescue them, to say through them, the Messiah of the whole world will come uh, to bless the entire world. That God is merciful on a people who do nothing to deserve it. And now God, through Jesus, extends that mercy to all of us. That while we were at our worst, God chose to love us and give us grace, not because we're special or in any way, but because God loves us. And so to close, I think what we can see from the, from the story of the plagues is probably different than what you might think on a surface-level reading. But what we actually see happening in the plagues is this, that God's mercy is always a gift. God's mercy is always a gift. It's not about you and you trying really hard and you being a great person and you doing all these things. This means, right, the good news of the gospel that Christ came to do for us what we could not do for himself, ourselves. He lived a perfect life, died in our place, overcame sin and darkness so that anyone who would trust and follow him in the midst of your sin and your doubts and your brokenness and your messing it up can receive the grace and mercy of God. The gospel means that there is no swagger or arrogance for people who follow Christ, right? The gospel, as we said in the series, is you are not awesome. Awesome. Right, You're not awesome. I'm not awesome. And God loves us anyway. Why? Right? It's why scripture says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not about us making a deal with God, being a really good person, and that maybe he'll love us, that God, out of his grace and his mercy, because it is a gift, gave us what we do not deserve. So it means in times like now when the election is coming up, that if God has actually given us grace and mercy, that we are, that we give other people grace and mercy, that what we say or what we type on a keyboard is infused with the grace that we have received because, listen to me, the degree to which you believe that God's mercy is a gift is the degree to which you will give mercy and grace to other people. If you think you're awesome and therefore God loves you, that's gonna produce an arrogant spirit in your life that is completely counter-cultural or counterscriptural to what we see happening all throughout the Bible. That God loves us in spite of us because he cares for us. That God's mercy is always a gift. It's always a gift. So I don't know what you've been walking through this year, the doubts that you have, the mess ups that you've made, the poor decisions that you have made. You need to know that God loves you right where you are because his mercy is the same for you and as it is for me. It is always a gift that God loves us, and we see that ultimately through his son. The beautiful thing about Christianity and following Jesus is that we do not have a God who just says good things and says that he loves us, but he actually demonstrates it for us and coming to the earth and dying for us and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God's mercy is always a gift. And the invitation is to come and to see it and to receive it and allow his good news, his word, and the power of his spirit to impact how we give grace and mercy to other people. Let's pray.